Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, thanks for joining us today. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I'm joined, as always, by Carl Truman and Amy Bird, and we're so glad that you took time to uh, listen to us. One of the things that caught our attention as we were wondering about what to talk with you all about today was a little blurb in a post by Tim Challies, where he talked about trends, themes, challenges for Reformed folks coming into this year. And of the three things he lists, one of them is, quote, the growth of charismatic practice. And he writes this, in 2018, Reformed Christians who hold to charismatic theology will increase their distinctly charismatic practices. Traditionally, Reformed theology has been cessationist, teaching that though God can and does perform miracles in today's world, the miraculous sign gifts such as prophecy, healing, and speaking in tongues are no longer operational. Yet modern-day Calvinism has long been marked by ministries and leaders who insist those gifts remain operational. A majority or large majority of new Calvinists consider themselves, quote, open and cautious, believing the gifts are operative. These people want to practice those gifts, yet avoid the excesses of the wider charismatic movement, end quote. All right, so Carl and Amy, this is interesting to me because I identify with so much of what he's writing. I followed a similar path that so many Reformed folks do. I was Baptist, of course, you know, not charismatic, but you also don't want to put God in a box. And one of the things I had to wrestle with in grappling with Reformed theology and historic confessionalism was how was I going to understand the so-called sign gifts or the miraculous gifts or the apostolic gifts and having arrived at my position of cessationism, I am kind of dismayed at the continued popularity and experimentation with various charismatic manifestations within, you know, the reformed-ish new Calvinistic category out there. So as we talk a little bit about that, I think maybe the thing to do would be to kind of define cessationism why we would hold to cessationism, why that isn't, quote, putting God in a box, what would be our, our rationale for embracing cessationism over continuationism? Give me some thoughts. Well, I think the first point to make would be to say that cessationists, those who believe that the gifts have ended, are not anti-supernaturalists. Right. I think that's, that's a good often point. It's often sort of played this idea that, hey, if, you, if you're not a charismatic, if you are a cessationist, then you're not allowing that God can act supernaturally. I'd certainly deny that. My church has the same pathology as many other churches. Whenever we have prayer requests, 
the vast majority of those prayer requests are relative to medical conditions, and we are praying for individuals to be healed. Uh, We pray, of course, that they'll be healed through the means God has provided, such as doctors, medical science, hospitals, healthcare, etc. But we also pray, hoping and asking God to intervene miraculously Mm -hmm. to heal people as well. And I don't see that that compromises my cessationist stand at all. Cessationists do not deny that God acts supernaturally here and now in the world. Cessationists deny really that particular individuals have particular gifts at their disposal Mm -hmm. uh, in order to build up the body of Christ. Right, right. And that is a key distinction. Yeah. Because oftentimes, cessationists are accused as not believing in the supernatural, or you'll hear this old canard thrown out, oh, so you don't believe in miracles. Mm -hmm. No, actually, we do. (laughs) We believe that God has, will, and probably will continue at times to break in in miraculous ways. What we deny is the continuation of the apostolic manifestations of power. We believe that those were reserved for the ministry of the apostles. Yeah, I mean, just to to state the obvious, all three of us are Calvinists. Mm -hmm. When we pray for people to be converted, we pray for them to be converted by God miraculously. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Interventionally, one might say. Absolutely. Right. One one difference I see in the charismatic movement, which I find very incompatible with Reformed theology, is this emphasis on hearing like an inner voice within versus our emphasis on the external word and the external Mm -hmm. ministry of the preaching and sacraments and and discipline in the church. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that's not compatible. Right, right. And you know, know, it's interesting, Amy, you mentioned the sacraments. And why I say that's interesting is that Reformed cessationists like us believe that something supernatural, if you like, and deeply spiritual is happening in the sacraments, which right. ironically right. are Baptist, Reformedish, New Calvinist, Continuationist brothers and sisters mm-hmm. tend to not believe. Is right. It diminishes that when, when you focus on this right, internal. Right. Yeah, we had the Lord's Supper yesterday at our church, and it was such a wonderful thing to explain that once again to our people as we do every month and to fence the table and to talk about this sacramental union, that there is a spiritual thing happening between the sign and the thing signified. Knowing that in my continuationist churches, it was being explained merely as a memorial, you know, a bare yeah. memorial. So that's an interesting, um, I guess you could call it an, an irony uh, there. How about this? Some key figures in the kind of Calvinistic continuationist camp would be guys like Sam Storms, John Piper. Matt Chandler, Wayne Grudem, the Sovereign Grace, you know, churches, Acts 29. Those would be leaders among the new Calvinist charismatic camp. They're almost all or or all Baptists that I'm aware of. And so that's where you'll see this kind of new charismatic theology. And typically they veer away from some of the more outlandish stuff that you see among the Kenneth Copelands and Benny Hinn's out there. But my problem is, I don't see where they would have a whole lot of scriptural warrant for veering away from that, given Mm -hmm. their presupposition that these apostolic gifts are still operative. 
Well, and one thing that Charlie's notes in his article is that, you know, people who want to be open to charismatic teaching who are coming into Reformed theology, they're waiting for trusted teachers to model how it's done. And I thought, wow, that just leads to total celebrity culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you're looking to these men, you know, mm-hmm. to show you how it's done. And once again, it's the Holy Spirit's work disconnected from the Word of God. Yeah. And to assess whether they're good teachers or not, one ultimately has to go back to the regulative principle of Scripture. And you know, if Scripture is regulative, to what extent are claims to charismatic words of knowledge actually helpful or adding anything significant at all? To what extent, if I have a word of knowledge and then it has to be regulated by Scripture, if it contradicts Scripture, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. If it's consistent with Scripture, they'll... How is it different from preaching? me preaching and applying the word on a Sunday? Exactly. Uh, uh, that's a question I've asked charismatic friends over the years and never really received a satisfactory answer to. And, and I think you know, one of the things I would say on the whole is that the men you've mentioned are good teachers precisely at those points when they are not charismatic. Right. John Piper mm. is a good teacher precisely mm-hmm. at that point when he's doing his biblical exposition right. or talking about and applying scripture. Mm-hmm. He's very unhelpful when he's off sharing platforms with some of these weird people right. that he shared platforms with over the years, charismatic people, and one's left yeah. questioning, well, why did you do that right, right. because that was profoundly unhelpful yeah. and actually your lack of ability to to critique that connects to your bad charismatic theology right and you see the same thing for instance with sam storms who is an admirable scholar a book, genuine his book scholar. on amillennialism is excellent outstanding Ex- stuff he has been incredibly helpful with eschatology He's a historical scholar of Jonathan Edwards. He's done some marvelous work, and yet he also, for instance, openly and enthusiastically endorses the ministry of Mike Bickle of International House of Prayer, who's a discredited false prophet. And so your point being, as soon as they veer into the charismatic part of their teaching, they become highly speculative Mm -hmm. and, in my mind, highly unreliable. Yeah. Well, and all my friends, it's interesting, who have charismatic... You mean both of your friends, Amy. (laughs) Let's not pretend you have have too many. Charismatic tendencies. Um, I find it interesting that the voice they hear from God is always like a whispering, soft encouragement. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, often an encouragement to do something that their heart has been desiring to to do. (laughs) Anyway, I mean, you never hear of like warnings from God (laughs) on these voices or, you know, holiness or judgment. So I find that interesting. Yeah. There's also, to me, a great irony with the more, quote, moderated new Calvinist charismatics in that in their desire to avoid the excesses of some Bethel Church Reading and all of these other crazy new trends and popular trends in charismatic circles, in order to avoid that, they end up admitting that there are differences today than there were in right, the apostolic right. era. And so, you know, they criticize cessationists for saying, nope, this is not the apostolic era. Things have changed. And they go, hold it. Where does it say that in scripture? And yet they still say, okay, no, we're not. There are things that are different. They're arbitrarily drawing a line, for instance, and saying, okay, we can do what the apostles did. Well, except for right scripture. 
And as far as I know, John Piper does not claim to raise the dead or know anybody who has raised the dead. And this is part of one of the reasons why I'm a cessationist is because of just plain old sanctified common sense. Where are the apostolic miracles actually happening? I'm not talking about there's a man in Toledo whose left ear is hard of hearing. I'm opening. I'm talking about the dead being raised because the shadow of the apostle passed over him. The emphasis does tend to be rather on the... uh the non-verifiable low-stakes gifts, if we could put it that way. I remember reading something about one of those, maybe it was one of the Toronto blessing things, where everybody was praying who had needed dental work, they were miraculously getting gold fillings. Yes, exactly. And I thought, why are they getting fillings? How's that a miracle? I think the whole tooth would heal. Like, why would God fill a cavity? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It should be yeah. an awesome <laughs> smile. Um, well, at, at, at Bethel Redding, which is making all kinds of inroads into 20-somethings, you know, they have angel feathers fall from the roof of their worship center on, on Sunday. So that's pretty cool as well. My, my, we have pixie dust at Cornerstone Presbyterian. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. But, but even like, for instance, with Wayne Grudem, who wants to advance the continuation of the apostolic gifts, nevertheless... <laughs> has to create this doctrine of what he calls fallible prophecy. Mm-hmm. So even in, in the exercise of the gift of prophecy today, we have to have a category for fallible prophecy. Get, get out mm-hmm. of jail free, Kurt. Right, right. I would challenge our new Calvinist continuationists out there that want to be open to these things. I just want to challenge you to think, you know, you're still drawing lines, and, you know, where's the scriptural warrant for that? And speaking of scripture, this is one of my fears is that continuationism does violence to the sufficiency of scripture. Mm-hmm. That was a major contradiction I saw in Grudem's systematic theology. Yes. My early 20s, my pastor gave me that systematic theology and I'm reading through it all. And I, you know, went up to him asking, like, how does this chapter on the sufficiency of scripture work with his views on prophecy and continuationism? And he wouldn't answer. He wouldn't because, answer me. Yeah, there just simply is no answer. It is my belief that you cannot have a proper theology of Scripture, embracing the sufficiency of Scripture, and be a continuationist. You have to have. If you're going to be a continuationist, you have to have a category for addendums to the Bible. You just have to. Well, and you see that, and I really see it in women's ministries, but just in uh, the Jesus Calling book, it's like something else is needed besides Scripture, in addition to Scripture. And that's what she says right in the beginning of the book, that I wanted more God's Word recorded in Scripture. One of the things I worry about is that charismatic theology could be corrosive of appropriate biblical church government and possibly facilitate the rise of abusive church leadership as well. And I have to be careful what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that charismatic churches will naturally have abusive leaders. But what charismatic churches have is one of the necessary preconditions Mm -hmm. for abusive leadership, and that is a leadership untethered from the regulative power of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Because If you have a leadership that is receiving direct messages from God and from the Spirit, it becomes very, very difficult to hold that leadership 
to account. Now, that's not to say that all charismatic churches go there. Praise God. And going back to what we were talking about a few moments ago, so many charismatics are actually utterly inconsistent on that <laughs> right, point. Right. That is a sign of God's grace, and that yes. is excellent. Right. But there is a real danger when somebody is getting special words of knowledge from the Lord that their leadership of the church becomes untethered from anything but their own subjective desires and experiences. And that's a dangerous place to be. Yeah. It can happen in a cessationist church as well sure. for other reasons. But where you have a situation where a theology detaches authority from the regulative power of Scripture, you have a potential for cult-like developments. Mm, mm, I think that's a good warning. And, and mm. you know, and we would also want to say, look, we, you know, we've got lots of wonderful brothers and sisters that are continuationists, that are charismatics. We don't want to, you know, impugn their, their love for Jesus at all. But we would plead with them to examine their inconsistencies, as Carl put up, because I would say that all of the, quote, new Calvinist charismatics that I know have a, thank God, a blessed inconsistency in their application and understanding of the charismatic gifts. And I would, you know, I would just love for them to look at that and to examine it. And then I just wanted to say a word about cessationists like us will oftentimes, you know, the big accusation is, you know, you're putting God in a box and there's this natural attractiveness to continuationism because it's saying, Oh, you know, we believe that God still works. Cessationists don't believe that God still works. Well, you know, hopefully we've addressed that some, but this idea of putting God in a box, and I would just want to say, to believe that God does what he pleases to do at various times is not putting him in a box. The opening verses of Hebrews, for instance, where God at one time spoke to the prophets, but now he does this, is just simply taking God at his word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 is right. definitely not putting God in a box. Right. It's interesting because a lot of times I'll hear also, like that, the argument that we believe the Spirit can work as He desires. And I think, well, does the Holy Spirit, like, does He have His own will separate (laughs) from the triune God? You know, there's one will. Well, according to some, I was going to say, depends who you're talking to, but we better not name names. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, you know, I think we're going back to the doctrine of God again, Uh and we believe that the Word is living and active. That's not putting the Holy Spirit in a box? Absolutely not. And there again, Amy, you brought up another thing, you know, along with the sacraments, you know, the ministry of the word, the people who, in my experience, have the highest view of God's supernatural action in the preaching of his word, in the simple preaching of his word, are reformed cessationists mm-hmm. who really believe something powerfully so supernatural has happened. On God and his word, not on ourselves and the teacher or the person with the gift. A special apostolic gift that I possess, but it's right. The emphasis is on God and how he has promised to use his word. Well, that's a discussion that I'm sure has offended absolutely none of our (laughs) listeners whatsoever. Uh, We're very happy, as always, to bring a bit of ecumenical peace and cheer (laughs) to the uh, new Calvinist world. Um, We had a bit of a discussion before the program, what to give away as a premium, and we've settled on a book that... I think it's an oldie and a goodie. It upset just about everyone on both sides of this debate when it came out. But I found it as a young Christian struggling with the charismatic issue to be very helpful because it it comes down on the cessationist side, but is very ironic and thoughtful in tone. And that is Dr. J.I. Packer's 
book from the mid-1980s, Keep in Step with the Spirit. It's an excellent treatment of the topic of the Holy Spirit as a whole. It's not simply on the charismatic issue. And I think not only offers helpful and thoughtful critique of charismaticism, but also helps reorientate our thinking on the Spirit to focus on holiness. So the premium this week, for those who want to go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, for a chance to win this, is Keep in Step with the Spirit by J.I. Packer. And if you don't win it, I would urge you to get hold of a copy from your church library or from Amazon or somewhere like that and read it because it is an extremely helpful book on this issue. While you're visiting our website, please consider making a donation. We are a donor-supported podcast. And in the meantime, it only remains for me to thank you for listening today, and we look forward to joining you again next week. Somebody give God praise! Oh, come on, praise Him! My God, feel that! God sweep over Meridian, Mississippi with anointing of the Holy Ghost. Man. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... We want to talk about something that's very important to the ministry of the church. Elders who are looking after the the care of the souls, and there are deacons who look after the care of the body. So when you're looking in uh, 1 Timothy 3 here, you see that wives too must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Have you ever turned away that nomination because of their wife? That interview is next time. Join us then. Caramba, Hama, Hakim. You are holding after in the background. You did it. You got it. <laughs>